Always a wonderful opportunity to talk about the things that Christ has done for us. And today, with the beginning of this new sermon series, we have the opportunity to see where, at least in the New Testament, it all got started. Now, it's a little bit of a daunting task. If you know anything about the book of Matthew, you will know that the first 17 verses of the first chapter are the Begatitudes. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and and he begat so-and-so, and and he had so-and-so. Really inspiring reading. Here's the issue. You know, I kind of went, I don't know that I want to start with the the Begatitudes for a new sermon series. No one may come back the second week. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, says that, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. So you know what that means for me this morning? That even in the begats, there is something that God has for us in doctrine or in teaching. Now, I will be the first to confess that I don't know that I have seen that before in reading the genealogies. I think I kind of sped through them when I've read them before. But what's been marvelous is as I have slowed down and tried to discern what God's message was for us, it was a profitable experience. And so I hope this morning that you put your listening ears on and that you open your heart up to listen to the message that is even Right here. So because of the challenge that we have before us, I'm going to ask us to do something that we don't do every Sunday. Because we believe that all Scripture is inspired and profitable. I'm going to ask for you to stand as we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. God's Word says this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, and Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, 
and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Now, as we begin a study of the Gospels, one of the things that's helpful is to understand that there are four eyewitness testimonies to the Gospel. Why do we have four Gospels? Why not one? Well, it's kind of like a police at a crime scene investigation. He's not just going to ask just one witness. Whose fault was it? Well, you know, their fault. You know, every eyewitness is going to add uh, their perspective to the story, but the story is indeed true. And so each of the gospel writers has a very different perspective on how they tell the story of who Christ is. For Matthew, he is writing predominantly to a Jewish audience. Now, in my mind, there's all kinds of interesting New Testament studies that say Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke kind of caught. I don't buy that. The first people group that needed a gospel would have been the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And so for some of you that are into New Testament studies, you'll be interested. We can talk about that later. But I think there is a reason why Matthew is first in our New Testament. I think chronologically it was first. It was the most necessary. Now the thing that's interesting, Luke includes a genealogy as well in his gospel. The only two. John doesn't. Because John starts off, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. He is the eternal Son of God. He doesn't need a genealogy. His genealogy includes one person, the Father. Done. Mark really portrays Jesus kind of as a very busy man of action, almost like a superhero. You know what, superheroes, it doesn't doesn't matter what their genealogy is. They're imbued with power and authority, and Jesus gets to it in the Gospel of Mark. Luke, in his genealogy in his gospel, goes all the way back to Adam. Whereas Matthew only goes back to Abraham. Because Matthew's intention is to write to the Jewish believers. Luke's gospel is more universal. So he takes it all the way back to Adam, who's the father of all humanity. And so it's interesting to pay attention to the different purposes, the different audiences that's helpful. And so for a gospel that is directed to the Jewish people, and for a writer who wants to demonstrate the kingship of Jesus, king needs genealogy. We need to know that he's from the right bloodline. And so genealogy and prophecy actually play a heightened role in the Gospel of Matthew that are still important in the other Gospels, but they're not as important because of their audience. And so having this understanding of purpose and audience and destination, Matthew starts off with a really bold claim. 
He starts in verse 1. He says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Our first point is this. Matthew's saying that Jesus fulfills the messianic requirements. There is no beating around the bush for Matthew. He doesn't introduce things and kind of, you know, he wants to get you to this point, and so he's going to start over here and kind of walk you up to it. Verse 1, he says, Jesus is the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Jumps right in. We know what his purpose is. His purpose is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, what's Messiah mean? It means anointed one. Now, who gets anointed? Kings get anointed. So in the very first half of a sentence of his gospel, he said, hey, y'all, because Matthew was from South Carolina. Hey, y'all, Jesus is the king. He just boldly kind of puts it out there and says, this is it. What Matthew states in verse 1, he intends to prove in verses 2 through 17. So he just makes this bold, bold claim. Jesus is the king. And he says, let me prove it to you by giving you a genealogy. Now before we jump into the genealogy, I think it's interesting for us to note how his Messiahship is proved. Do you see it in verse 1? He says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And then what does he say? Son of David, son of Abraham. Now, I won't, I won't quiz you too much this morning, but there's, there's something interesting about that order. What's interesting about the order? David wasn't born before Abraham was. So if you're going chronologically, it should be son of Abraham, son of David. But Matthew inverts the chronology. That's a really important clue. Because what is Matthew's purpose? To show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king. So here's what happens here that I think is really, really interesting. When we talk about, when we talk about Jesus as the king, it's important that it be proven through this genealogy that he comes from David's line. So when you hear the word son of David, you have to go back to two passages in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. In Isaiah chapter 9, where God makes a promise to David that one of his descendants will rule forever. He will put a son of David on the throne eternally. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't Rehoboam. There's a promise that there will be a forever king. Not that just his line will continue, but there will be an eternal king. So when we hear, this is kind of Bible code language... When we hear the word son of David, we should automatically hear forever king. He's trying to say, Jesus is that forever king. Here's the thing that's interesting. Then he says, it's not just son of David, he's son of Abraham. And this is how I've kind of put this together. I don't know if we have any English teachers in here. Any English teachers? Any people that want to be English teachers? How many of you failed grammar? (laughs) Matthew's point is to prove that Jesus is the king, the son of David. 
And I think if that's his point, son of Abraham becomes the adjective to describe the kind of king that he is. Okay, you know, so you can say he's a good king. Good is the adjective describing what kind of king he is. He's a bad king. He's a dictatorial king. He's a benevolent king. So we know son of David means forever king. Son of Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? That he would be the man through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now, when we start to think about these two key teachings, son of David, son of Abraham, the promises that were made to David were restricted. They were Jewish, they were royal, they were national, and they were restricted to a specific ethnic people. That's the kind of, that's the kind of king the Jews wanted. And Matthew's saying, hey guys, that king, he's here. But pay attention to the adjective. He's not just a regional king of the Jewish people, because he is the son of Abraham. So he is not just the forever king of the Jews, he is the forever king who is the one who is the all nations blessing. So when we hear son of Abraham, that's code language. We should think all nations blessing. Man, that's a lot to pack into that one verse. He's saying, here's your king. But he's not just your king. The point is this. He is the king, but he is the king of all nations. That's the God we serve. He's not just our God. He's not just the God of this church. He's the God of the nations. Friends, that's why when we give our money to God, part of what we do as a church is we give it so it goes all the way around the world. Because we don't believe God wants our money just to stay right here. We use our money to support missionaries all over the world. We try to find ways to find strategic partnerships to support and go where the need is greatest. So that's why over this next year, we are really very hopeful that we will have people from our church that will go to Africa, that will go to India, because God is the God of those nations too. Wow. That's a lot. That's good stuff. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus fulfills the messianic requirements. I love the phrase that says, this is the record of the genealogy. You'll recognize it in Greek, and I think this is really significant. Record of, gene- of the genealogy is Biblos, Bible, the record, the book. Biblos, Genesios, from which we get the word Genesis. You know, the only other time that phrase Genesios occurs is in the book of Genesios, the book of Genesis. Now, listen, Matthew's no slouch. He's done his research. And so he's communicating that here in the middle of history, there is something so strange that is happening that it is like a completely new beginning. There is a second Genesis. And it's the first Genesis was Adam and how he messed up. The second Genesis is a second Adam, Jesus, the Son of God, who lives perfectly obedient to the Father. That's beautiful. Matthew didn't put Biblos Genesios in there by accident. It was a studied, and the only New Testament occurrence of that 
And Matthew inserts it right where Jesus' genealogy is. You know what I love? The very beginning of his gospel. Matthew is talking about a second Genesis. And it holds a specific promise for all who wish to know him. And it's this. It doesn't matter what your past history looks like. With Jesus, you can have a new beginning. The Bible says that any man who is in Christ is a new creation. So you know what? If you've had a bad week, if you have said something to your spouse that you regret, you know what? Today's a day of new beginnings. Mom or dad, have your children tested your patience this week? Today's a day of new beginnings. Has your heart been hurt? or sore by the events of this week. There's a, there's a new birth, a new creation, a new work for you. I think that's wonderful. I think that's good. Now, as we think through this whole idea of the genealogy, we'll turn our attention to that. It really teaches us a lot of things. And there's a couple of just kind of very general things to note. Um, for those of you that are serious Bible students, there's a lot of issues that we could unpack here in this genealogy. But I think one of the things that's important to note is that Matthew's chief concern is Christology, not chronology. Matthew's whole purpose is talking about who Christ is, the study of Christ. So his concern is Christology, not chronology. And I say that because of this. Going all the way back to Abraham, what is 14 and 14 is 28, 28 and 14 is 42... There's a lot more than 42 generations from Abraham to Christ. He's working with a certain set number. And so when he says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, that doesn't mean that this guy was the father of this guy. This guy could be the ancestor of this guy. Could be his grandfather, could be his great-grandfather, could be his great-great-great-grandfather. What he's establishing is that there is some line of descent. So when he's saying, Scott begat Caleb. Now in this case, yes, I am his... I am your father. (laughs) But he's not saying that that's the case every time. He's establishing some line of ancestry. So he's not concerned about chronology. He's not trying to give you, like, the, the answers to the pop quiz on the kings of Israel. It's not Bible trivia pursuit. He's not laying it all out in line. He, he is selective in including who he's included, and he skips people. Now, there's a lot of interesting reasons. What is this whole 14? Um, and you don't see this a lot in the Bible. The only other place that it occurs that I'm certain of is in Revelation, where it talks about the number of the beast. It says the number of the beast is 666. It's called gematria. It's a, it's a Hebrew way of translating words into numbers. Um, it's interesting when you take the word David, D-V-D, no, no vowels in Hebrew. It's four, six, four. D is four, D is four, V is six. That's 14. And I don't put a whole lot of stock in all this Bible code, Bible number stuff. The point for Matthew is to show that Jesus is the better David. He's the better king. He's the forever king. I just think it's interesting that he says there's 14 generations from here to here, from here to here, from here to here. And it is the number corresponding to who David is. Uh, some, some, some great stuff here. 
But there are two specific, our, our second and third points, there are two specific doctrinal points that I think the genealogy makes. You read it, you heard the names. And the first point is this, point number two, is that Jesus' genealogy highlights the grace of God. It highlights the grace of God, and you see this specifically in verses 2 through 6. In a genealogy, especially a genealogy that is being written for a king, there's a big no-no that Matthew does. He includes women. You don't include ladies in a king's genealogy. Now, besides Mary, Jesus' mother, he names four other ladies. Now, what you may not know is there was a standard convention for who the four Jewish matriarchs were. Sarah, uh, Rebecca, Leah, and who am I leaving out? It left me. I'm having a senior moment. But there were four patriarchal women who were regarded as the four matriarchs of the Old Testament. Matthew doesn't include them. Sarah doesn't make it. Rebecca doesn't make it. Rachel doesn't make it. Leah doesn't make it. Instead, did you see who he puts in there? Rahab, or Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, and one who we're not even going to say her name. The wife of Uriah. He includes four women. So including women in a genealogy, not normal. You know what God's saying? Not only is he the God of all nations, he's a God of women and men. He's a God of both genders. Not normal. Now, here's the thing that's not normal, too. With the vast majority of at least three-quarters of these women, there are um, questionable moral practices involved with these women's lives. Ruth is the only one who is uh, kind of got a clean bill of uh, sale. Um, Tamar, Tamar uh, committed incest with her father-in-law Judah. Judah was supposed to give one of his sons to continue the line after Tamar's husband died, and Judah Judah just forgot about her. So Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and stands at the city gate, and when Judah comes up, he doesn't recognize her, and he impregnates her. And she she continues on the family line by way of deceit. She's incestuous. Rahab... You remember Rahab, the story of uh, the children marching, Joshua, everyone marching into the Holy Land? Rahab was a prostitute who helped the children of God be victorious at Jericho. Um, Bathsheba, y'all know that story. It's not in any of your children's storybooks either. You know, they're going to skip over. These, these women are not the ladies that you teach in Sunday school for how to be a woman of virtue. Um, <laughs> they're just not. There's questionable issues. And yet... God, through Matthew, includes these women in Jesus' royal genealogy. So it's not normal to have women. You would think you would edit out anything questionable in a king's genealogy, but yet here are women known for their impurity that are included specifically in the genealogy. And then last but not least, all four of these women are not Jewish. They're foreigners. They're Gentiles. And they all get included. Tamar. It says in uh, Genesis 38 that Judah wanted to go see his friend, Era the Adulamite. 
who happens to be a Canaanite. And while he's there, his son marries Tamar. So while he's running through Canaan, he marries his son off to a Canaanite woman. Tamar's not even Jewish. Now we know Ruth. Ruth's not a Jew either. She's a Moabitess who gets connected to Naomi and comes back through a time of famine. Um, Rahab. Rahab's not a Jew. She gets included into the Jewish people, but she is a Jerichoite, if that's an ite in the Bible. Uh, I may have just made that up. She's a Jerichoite. She's a Canaanite. In Bathsheba, uh, my translation puts Bathsheba's name there. In the original text, Bathsheba's name isn't even listed. Instead, they just have a silence for her name, and they say, also, so-and-so, who was the wife of Uriah. Who's Uriah? Uriah the Hittite, not a Jew. Now, Bathsheba may have been a Jew, but by marrying a non-Jew, she revoked her blue blood ancestry. And see, most Jewish genealogies would do everything that they could to prove lack of corruption by intermarriage. We want Jesus, we want Jesus the Jewish king to have his pedigree. We want him to be AKC certified. You know, we want, a, we want a show dog, you know, not some mongrel mutt who's interbred with non-Jewish people. And yet God shows his grace by including women who are impure and were not even of the Jewish nation. Is that not gracious and magnificent to see? It's a wonderful thing to observe as we look at this. From the start... God's plan has been interracial. Now, for some of you who subscribe to a particular kind of eschatological position, that's not an easy word for you to hear. It doesn't change the truth of it. That God promised from the very beginning, before the law was given, that he would bless all nations, not just the Jews. The Jews had a special um, point of privilege in being a part of God's plan. But they were never solely or only God's plan. God was kind to women of ill repute who were also Gentiles. And the point is this. God can forgive and overcome any sin that you have committed. And he can use repentant people for things that will go down in history as momentous occasions. You think Rahab the harlot knew that she would be the great, 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 great grandmother of the Christ? And God did that. It was not by mistake that Rahab was the only one saved out of that city, committed to destruction. God knew at the time that she was going to be the downline or the upline of his son, the king. It's incredible. And so this morning, you know, we have, we, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. We've talked about, briefly, one of the greatest moral evils in our day. Do you know what? That does not define who you are if you are in Christ. We've talked about one of the songs that we sang. When I am um, cursed by my own sin and my circumstances, that Jesus allows us to put his hand in his side and be identified by his blood and not our mistakes. 
You see, what Christ, what God has done for us in Christ is greater than our ethnicity. It's greater than our nationality. It's greater than our morality. And friends, I'm here to tell you, no matter what has happened, no matter how many times you have lost your anger, no matter how many bad decisions you have been a part of, heaven forbid, like Fallon in our video, however many children you have aborted, today can be a new day for you in Christ. Because that's the kind of God we serve. He's gracious. And he overlooks past indiscretions. I think it's interesting. Jesus didn't come just for sinners. But his genealogy actually indicates that he came from sinners. That's not so radical, but it's true. He didn't just come for, but he came from. Our third and final point is that Jesus' genealogy demonstrates God's sovereignty. Jesus' genealogy demonstrates God's sovereignty. Now, I need you to um, imagine with me. I don't know what kind of margin you have in your notes, but I'm going to give you a teaching tool here that I think is very helpful. You have to have good handwriting, though, good penmanship. So some of you are excluded already. I've seen your handwriting. Uh, Somewhere in your margin or somewhere where you've got some space... I want you to do this. I want you to write an italicized capital N. So don't draw it straight up, straight down with a slant. Draw it all kind of cattywampus here a little bit. Lean it. And I think this is a really great way for us to understand God's sovereignty over the entire history of the nation of Israel. So you're going to get about 2,500 years here in 30 seconds. In the genealogy, genealogy is broken down into three sections. You have from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation, and from uh, the return from exile to Christ. In this italicized N, in a visual way, pictures what happened in God's sovereign outworking of his plan in a very simple way. You see, when God chose Abraham, he started something awesome. And so that first line up is Abraham to David. It's a time of great blessing, great fulfillment. We have, the, we have the king, David, the man after God's own heart. Golden years for the nation of Israel. It's perfect. It, it is, if it's a stock market indicator, it's all good. It is moving up. But what happens after David? It's not good. Even from within his own house, he is challenged. And the kingdom ends up being torn apart. You have the pit of exile. You have the loss of the holy lands. You have the destruction of the temple. It it, it goes from this high increasing kind of trajectory to a nosedive. Get the parachute out. It's bad. The bottom's coming. It's terrible to be in captivity. Captured as a conquered foe. And that's what they experience. But then he turns again for that third and final 14-generation span. And while the return from uh, exile back into the Holy Land, they're not easy years. As a matter of fact, we don't know a whole lot about it. The books of uh, 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 Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, some of those help us a little bit, some of the prophets. But all the kings mentioned in the last, the third section, we we know very, very, very little about who they are. It's that dark period between those 400 years between when Christ last, when God last spoke and the advent of Christ. 
The point is this. God had rescued them from slavery yet again. And while they had gone from Abraham to David, from David down to the deportation, the very fact that they're rescued means things are on the uptick again. And you know what the end of this end is? The birth of Christ. It's Jesus. And I think this is the point in the genealogy. Matthew's trying to say this. Jews, um, I want you to figure something out here. When you add up all of history, you know what the sum total is that you get? Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Here's the lesson of the downward spiral, that second generation. It is true that God forgives, but it's also true that God is sovereign in what he demands. The children of Israel had proven disobedient. And because of that, we see judgment, we see exile, we see loss, we see destruction. We see the obliteration of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. He is king, and we should obey him. And I don't know why, even in the church, we are surprised when we blatantly disobey God, and then we're disappointed when he judges us. We're disappointed when we reap the natural consequences of our rebellion, and we say, what's, what's God's problem? You disobeyed the king of the universe. There are natural... You jump off a building, you will break. And yet, when we disobey, we think the problem is with God. And we turn our gaze from ourselves. You see, God has a mighty claim upon the life of all people. But especially upon the ones who claim to be his child. If you are a disobedient Christian, that is an oxymoron. Sure, you are going to disobey in ways that you don't even intend to. But to blatantly disregard his kingship is unwise. God proves faithful to his people and patiently bears with them and keeps his promise. And that brings us to the lesson of the final upward slope. God demonstrates his sovereignty, not just by judging, but he demonstrates his sovereignty by keeping his word. You see, there's an author to this whole up and down trajectory of everything that Israel is experiencing, and it's God the Father. God the Father blessing and and, and raising to a golden age of blessing, judging, restoring, and then bringing the Christ. God's the author of this story. It's difficult, but he promised he would do it. He promised that the Christ would come. And I find it interesting. This is a side note. Let me get far away from the pulpit so you know this is just opinion. God made a promise to Abraham. And how long did it take for that promise to come true? About 2,000 years? Okay, church. This is not a prediction. Just play along here for a second. Jesus promised that he's coming back. How many of you think it's going to be soon? Every generation of Christians has thought it's going to be soon. There's a lot of Christians who have been disappointed. But you know what? How long has it been since he made the promise to return? It's been about 2,000 years. The point is this. God's faithfulness in keeping his word to Abraham should be a reassurance that though it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back yet, he will be 
faithful to his word. He is coming back. And the great news here is that this downward slope of the end, judgment does not have to be the final word. The the final word is Christ in what you do with him. God is sovereign over all the chaos of the highs and the lows of Israel's history. And when you go through challenging times, God is sovereign over those too. God, God has not abandoned you. He's sovereign. He's good. And the Bible says that in the fullness of time, when it's just right, He sends His Son to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die for rebels like you and me. And so this is Matthew's message. That we have a king. And at the very beginning of his book, he states, Jesus is the Messiah, son of David, forever king, all nations blessing one. And you know what? He ends his book in the exact same way. With kingly words. You know the kingly words? The king-like words that he uses at the very end of his book? I'll give you a hint. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples, teaching them to be obedient to all the things that I have said. From the first bookend to the final chapter, Matthew's message is that as Christians, we shouldn't put God in a little box where all he does is die on the cross for all of our mess-ups, but that he is an eternal blessing king who loves this world so much that he sent us unto die, that we are called to go just as he was. We have a choice to be obedient to our king or not. And as we talk over the next few months through the book of Matthew, we will come back to this theme of the king and what his kingdom is like. And we will have to choose whether we will be happy citizens of his kingdom. And so today, as we move into our time of response, if you need a new beginning, it's not the new year, it's not time for a resolution, we're like a month beyond that. But with Jesus, every day is an opportunity for new birth. And it's an opportunity for a new beginning. Perhaps you're here and you're not a believer. You're religious, but you've never committed publicly your life to Christ. You've never stood up and been accountable. Today is an opportunity for you to respond. We won't embarrass you. We will will do our best to serve and encourage you and help you to grow as a believer. But perhaps you're a believer and you have gotten off track. You're not being obedient to your king. You are your king, not him. The Bible says there's a very easy way for you to fix that. And it's called repenting. Telling God, agreeing with God where you have gone wrong. And asking him to forgive you by his word, by his spirit, and by his people to build you up. And so today, as we conclude our opening message about the king and his kingdom, how will you respond? with me, please. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. God, I pray 
that even as we read a portion of Scripture that many people consider boring and irrelevant, that you have, as a good father, shown us precious truths and treasures out of your word, that you are the Messiah, our King, that you are a gracious and forgiving God, that you are sovereign. However, we need to hear those words today. Have your spirit work in our life to help us to bow our hearts and our knees to your lordship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.